Our scripture reading this morning comes to us again from the book of Daniel. We're going to read together selected verses from chapter 4. You can find these in the inside front cover of the bulletin or in your church Bibles on page 740. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. And behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw... It is you, O king, and this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Please be seated. Let's bow our heads again for just a moment of prayer. What gifts do we have to offer? Accept what you have first given us, O Lord. Take these meditations of mine and make them alive. Make them speak to us, Lord, according to your will and your good pleasure. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Well, about 600 years after the prophet Daniel wrote the book of Daniel, the Apostle Paul wrote something in a letter to the church of Corinth about some Old Testament stories that provides us with a framework for understanding the scripture just read by John. He wrote, These things happened to the people of Israel as examples 
and were written down as warnings for us on whom the end of the ages has come. And the things that Paul had in mind were accounts of what happened to Israel when its people worshipped a false god, when they committed wholesale sexual immorality, when they brazenly put God to the test, when they grumbled about their station in life. As a result of those indiscretions, tens of thousands died by the sword, thousands more were killed by poisonous snakes, and in that last episode, an entire generation was left for dead in the desert of Sinai. All for our sakes, according to Paul, all as examples of things we shouldn't do, and as warnings of what will happen to us if we do them. Well, much the same can be said about the story of Nebuchadnezzar as reported in Daniel 4. What happened to him happened as an example for us and was written down as a warning for us on whom the end of the ages has come. We owe Nebuchadnezzar a debt of gratitude. The outstanding question, of course, is will we learn from his example? And will we benefit from the warning his story supplies? Or won't we? Time will tell. And speaking of time, since the warning provided by Nebuchadnezzar comes in the form of a letter, let's use this morning's time to explore it by way of six common sense questions. Who wrote the letter? To whom was it written? What is its tone? What occasioned it? What is its message? And what is the warning we should take away from it? The answer to our first question, who wrote this letter, isn't hard to find since the author plainly identifies himself in verse 1. The letter was penned by none other than King Nebuchadnezzar, the protagonist of chapter 1 who besieged and ransacked Jerusalem, the agitated despot of chapter 2 who was troubled by a dream about a statue, the egotistical megalomaniac of chapter 3 who made a golden image of himself 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and then commanded every government official from the highest to the lowest to fall down and worship it or else be thrown into a blazing fire. Now this is the same Nebuchadnezzar who upon ascending to the throne spoke to his gods in his inaugural address, saying, May the house that I have built endure forever. May I be satiated with its splendor, attain old age therein with abundant offspring, and may I receive therein tribute from the kings of all regions, from all mankind. Quite the prayer. He's the same Nebuchadnezzar under whose reign Babylon became the most powerful city-state in the ancient Near East. And during his 43-year rule, he employed a vast army of slave labor to create a city which included the famous Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Ishtar Gate, and a city wall so thick 
and so long, 56 miles in length, encircling an area of 200 square miles that chariot races were conducted around its top. Now, Daniel's going to tell us in chapter 5, because of the high position God gave Nebuchadnezzar, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. I'm quite the man. But what does any of this have to do with us? Well, I'll tell you. It means the letter which follows was written by one of history's most accomplished, most feared, most famous, and most consequential men. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just a man of his times. He was a man for the ages. He stands shoulder to shoulder with the world's movers and shakers, with Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato, with King David, Alexander the Great, and Julius Caesar, with Moses, the Buddha, Confucius, and Muhammad. So if Nebuchadnezzar had something to say, the world had better listen. And more to our point, his command of men, his power, his military might, his genius, his wealth, in a word, his unrivaled success in life, makes him the ideal messenger for the message that he delivers. He is not an armchair quarterback. He's a player coach. He speaks from experience. He knows what he's talking about. If for no other reason than this one, he deserves our attention. But in fact, there is another reason for giving him our attention, and it's found in the answer to our second question. To whom did Nebuchadnezzar write this letter? And once again, the answer isn't hard to find, since Nebuchadnezzar plainly identified the intended recipients in the second half of verse 1. He addressed it to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth. Now ponder that for a minute. Nebuchadnezzar didn't address his letter to some inner circle or the citizens of Babylon or even the handful of nations and peoples who lived under his authority to the people of Egypt, Israel, Syria, Sidon, Assyria, Nineveh, and Susa. It was addressed instead to all of those nations and the nations and peoples who lived beyond even their far-flung borders. It was addressed to all who lived on the earth, excluding none. And the fact that Daniel, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, included this letter in his book, a book that's filled with forecasts of future empires and events, stretching right up to the end of time, leaves many thinking that Daniel, if not Nebuchadnezzar himself, wanted the letter to be read and understood by all who would ever live throughout all generations right up to the end of time because the topic under consideration was that universal and its message was that important and its warning was that relevant 
for everyone, wherever they lived, whenever they lived, and that includes us. So, are we listening? Are we paying attention? Which brings us to the third question. What's the tone of this letter that we should want to listen to it? Is it official sounding and magisterial, as might be expected of a letter written by a king? Or agitated, as might be expected of a letter written by the likes of King Nebuchadnezzar, based on what we know about him from chapters 2 and 3? Is it foreboding and threatening, as might be expected of a letter which was written, after all, to warn? It's none of these. Rather, it's upbeat. It's full of hope. At its heart, Nebuchadnezzar's letter is a benediction wrapped in a testimony. May you prosper greatly, it begins and then continues. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High has performed for me. Now, the importance of noting this becomes apparent when you know what follows. It isn't what you might expect based on the mention of miraculous signs and wonders in Nebuchadnezzar's opening line. For what follows is his account of a terrifying dream, which foretold a crippling, debilitating mental breakdown. And what follows is an account of seven years of humiliation. That's where this is headed. For the miraculous sign and the wonder that God performed for Nebuchadnezzar was a season of disgrace and dishonor, misery and misfortune, brought on when God touched this brilliant man's mind and took away his sanity. Nebuchadnezzar ended up thinking he was a cow, and so he behaved like a cow, living among wild animals and eating grass like a cow. And as a consequence, he was shunned by men and then driven away. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. And with this, we have the first of several ways that Nebuchadnezzar serves as an example to us. The prospect of his humiliation, a sudden and complete loss of standing, of honor, of control, terrified him. As would the prospect of such humiliation for us. And the experience of it was an agony to him, as it would be for us. But when he'd been delivered from his humiliation, when the Lord restored his mind, his throne, and his fortune, then his mouth was filled with laughter and his tongue with songs of joy, singing, the Lord has done great things for me, as could be, as should be the case for us. If well-being, if good fortune, if blessing is restored to us after any kind of loss. The takeaway, if you sense that something difficult is pending 
in your life, some hardship or trouble, some letdown, some takedown, or if you're in the middle of something difficult right now, don't despair. Resist the temptation to think this madness, this shame, this disgrace, this dishonor, this difficulty, this reproach is forever. It's never going to change. Because in God's time and in God's way, it can change and change dramatically. For everything, there's a season, as the author of Ecclesiastes tells us, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. And as the author of Hebrews tells us, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later, sometimes much later, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Or still again, as one of the characters of C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, explains, people say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for this, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn every agony into a glory. But the day will surely come when the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. Nebuchadnezzar, I think, would agree. And that brings us to our fourth question. What exactly prompted this letter and the events that it describes? The dream of an enormous giving tree which was unceremoniously cut down and Daniel's interpretation of the dream's meaning, you, O king, are that tree and you will be driven away from people. And the subsequent fulfillment of the dream when Nebuchadnezzar went mad, what occasioned it all? Well, just this, an attitude, an outlook, a point of view, a perspective, a perspective so pervasive, so second nature, so constitutional to Nebuchadnezzar that he never once thought to himself, this should not be, until a voice came from heaven and as much as said, this will not be. Verses 29 and 30 tell us what that perspective was. As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? I have built by my power For my glory. That's the attitude which occasioned this letter. Now we know why this letter was intended for people of every language, wherever and whenever they might live. It needed to be broadcast far and wide because, as C.S. Lewis again noted, there is one vice of which no one in this world is free, the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began, the vice I am talking about is pride. Nebuchadnezzar was proud. 
was the epitome and pinnacle of proud. And God's determination to do something about his pride, to take action against it, and the outcome of that action is what occasioned this letter. Baruch Spinoza, a medieval Jewish philosopher, defined the kind of pride on display in Nebuchadnezzar this way. Pride, he wrote, is thinking more highly and more often of yourself than is warranted. And adds author Jason Meyer, it is our greatest enemy. For while other vices lead us away from God, pride leads us to think that we can be God. It leaves us with the deadly illusion that we need to manage life. We need to find meaning. We need to create an identity. We need to secure a sense of worthiness and worth by ourselves, on our own. Which makes pride the first and foremost lie about reality. Pride says, I'm my own master, thank you. It says, I'm an independent agent. It says, I am my own meaning maker. It says, I'm better than you. It says, my personality, my sensibilities, my style, my tastes, my opinions, and my preferences are better than yours. It says, my kind are better than yours. It says, my country is better than yours. It says, my interests should take priority over yours. It says, my way or the highway. It says, get out of my way. It says, my shortcomings are understandable, but your flaws are inexcusable. It says, you can't tell me what to do. It says, do as I say, not what I do. It says, why did you do that, stupid? It says, everything depends on me. It says, the end justifies the means. It says, I've earned everything I have. It says, I deserve more than what I have. It says, I deserve better than what I have. It says, I have built by my power for my glory, or I could have, except so-and-so and such-and-such got in the way, By this reckoning, who among us is not proud? Don't we all say what Nebuchadnezzar said inwardly, if not outwardly? Don't we all say, isn't this the great blank? Fill it in for yourselves. Isn't this the great which I have built by my power for the glory of my majesty? You know, whether obscure and unsung or public and widely praised, whether abstract or concrete, whether fleeting or lasting, we all have something or someone about which we say, mine, thanks to me, for me. We all do. All of us suffer from the condition which occasioned Nebuchadnezzar's letter. Which brings us to our fourth question. If Nebuchadnezzar's pride is what prompted his letter, then what's the message he wanted to send to his readers? Well, he tells us, to begin with, in verse 3, 
where he writes, it's my pleasure to tell you that the kingdom of the Most High God is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Then he tells us again in verse 12, the living need to know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. And still again in verse 25, I ate grass like cattle and was drenched with the dew of heaven for seven years until I acknowledged that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And still again, in case we haven't gotten the message yet, in verse 32, seven times passed by for me until, I'm betting you could repeat it back to me right now, until I acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And then verses 34 and 35 say the same things in different words. I honor and glorify him who lives forever. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at last, in verse 37, he sums it up. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt And glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all of his ways are just. The most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And by implication, I am not. That's the first part of Nebuchadnezzar's message. God is supreme, he says. God is peerless. He says, God is without rival, he says. He is God, he says, and there is no other. He is God, there is no other like him. And the second part of his message, this sovereign God gives the kingdoms of men, some kingdoms as small as suitcases, others stretching across continents to anyone he wishes, even the lowliest of men. Nebuchadnezzar, as much as says, I was wrong. It never was. I have built by my power for my majesty. It was. It always will be. It can only be. It must only be. He has built by his power for his glory. That's a sentiment the Apostle Paul would echo 600 years later when he wrote, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from God and through God and for God are all things. To God, not to us be the glory forever. So the author, the audience, the tone, the occasion, and the message. And now at last, our last question, what's the warning sounded by Nebuchadnezzar in this letter? Well, it's found at the end of verse 37, the letter's concluding sentence where Nebuchadnezzar wrote, those who walk in pride... He's able to humble. That's his warning. 
Let it sink in. Let it register. In fact, let it trouble you. Let it unnerve you. Because God has gone on record. Not only can he humble those who walk in pride, he will humble those who walk in pride because he has said, I detest all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. That's from Proverbs. And he has said, the eyes of the arrogant will be humbled. Human pride will be brought low. And that's from Isaiah. And he said, the Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty. They will be humbled. Also from Isaiah. You see, the pride of humankind is on an unavoidable collision course with God himself. And the date for the showdown has been set. So the question isn't if we proud people will be humbled. It's when and how we will be humbled. In the end, there are really only two possibilities. We will either be humbled on the day anticipated by Isaiah, a still future day of judgment, when we will inescapably suffer the consequence of pride that we have not acknowledged and for which we have not repented, as Nebuchadnezzar did in part as an example for us when God withdrew his ever-present but invisible hand of blessing from him, when God abased him, when God mortified him. When that future day comes, the book of Revelation tells us it will be a terrible one. It will be a time when the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, will hide in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And on that day they will call to the mountains and the rocks, saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? All of humankind will be humbled on that day. But humbling on that day is avoidable. If we'll allow ourselves to be humbled by something that took place on another day, a day that's already passed. In fact, we can be humbled today, right now, by doing something similar to what Nebuchadnezzar did when he raised his eyes to heaven. We can be humbled right now by raising our eyes to the cross of Christ provided for us by heaven. We can be humbled right now now by hearing and believing the gospel by acknowledging that Jesus the son of God who was seen by Nebuchadnezzar in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego became a man in order to suffer the awful punishment our pride deserves Nebuchadnezzar was a man who imagined himself godlike But Jesus was the son of God who became a man. Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself. Jesus humbled himself. Nebuchadnezzar said, look what I have done. 
Jesus said, the son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees his father doing. Nebuchadnezzar was proud and made to suffer for his pride. Jesus was meek and made to suffer because we are proud. Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. Jesus lost his life. Nebuchadnezzar became like an animal. Jesus became like a worm and not a man. Nebuchadnezzar was driven away from people. Jesus was forsaken by God. See, Nebuchadnezzar became an example for us. But Jesus became a stand-in for us, a sin substitute, an atoning sacrifice. Nebuchadnezzar offered us a warning in his letter. Jesus offers us salvation and eternal life in his gospel. How will you be humbled? John Stott said it well. Every time I look at the cross, Christ seems to say to me, I'm here because of you. It's your sin I'm bearing, your curse I'm suffering, your debt I'm paying, your death I'm dying. Nothing in history or in the universe can cut us down to size like the cross. All of us are proud until we have visited this place called Calvary. So, visit Calvary. Raise your eyes to the cross. Be humbled and then sing the song of God's humbled people who has felt the nails upon his hands, bearing all the guilt of sinful man. God eternal, humbled to the grave. Jesus, Savior, risen out of reign. Behold our God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our king, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. Let's pray. Again and again and again and again, you have warned humankind, O Lord, to repent for its pride, forever thinking to itself that it could be like God. And not only have you warned us and urged us to repent, you've given us a way to make it all good by humbly looking to Jesus and taking for ourselves the work which he has done on our behalf. I pray, make us wise, Lord, unto salvation. Give us the grace we need to accept the provision which you have provided. And so be humbled by believing in and following Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name I pray, amen.